Good morning from Washington, D.C., a city still healing following scenes of Americans petitioning their governments for redress of grievances and the reprisals that followed. This morning, we all mourn with the family of George Floyd, whose memorial service is today, and all those whose loved ones have lost their lives through America's original sin of racism. My name is Paul Kincaid. I'm the Director of Congressional Outreach here at FMC. We'd like to thank you for joining us on our virtual roundtable this Thursday. We know this has been a stressful week, and we hope this will be a chance for informative civil discussion about a critical issue. As always with our Zoom calls, we welcome your questions for the panel. If you have a question this morning at any time, you can move your mouse down to the bottom of the Zoom screen and click the Q&A button. There you'll record your name and your question. If we choose you, our moderator will let the audience know your name, and then you'll be live on audio only to ask your question. Again, click the Q&A button at any time during the call. If you'd like to ask a question, we'll get to as many as we can. Our topic in any other leap year would be the number one topic of discussion this morning. Today, it sits squarely out of metal contention behind the continuing protests of police treatment of black Americans, the continuing challenges posed by COVID-19, and even America's return to manned space flight this past weekend. Every four years, America goes to the polls to elect its head of state and continue a long tradition of a peaceful transfer of power. Campaigns for president have changed throughout the years. Smoke-filled rooms gave way to wide open conventions. Eventually, primary elections arose, deciding the candidates since 1952. The general election has been the same. Nationwide battles we know today, with millions spent on advertising and thousands of staff on the ground knocking on doors, bears little re resemblance to the campaigns of our nation's past. However, the front to porch campaign, so frequently used in the 1800s, has returned as former Vice President Joe Biden and President Donald Trump have been limited in their public interactions by COVID-19. The electorate has changed as well. Today, as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, guaranteeing women's suffrage, all American citizens are guaranteed the right to cast their vote, though the protection of those rights remains in flux. Our question today is, what will the 2020 election look like? Will digital and traditional advertising be the dominant force? Will President Trump be able to host large-scale rallies? How critical will the presidential debates be? And how will Americans go to the polls? What will their turnout look like? We have a wonderful panel to answer those questions and a great moderator to guide them. Governor Bill Richardson served New Mexico in the U.S. House as a Democrat from 1983 to 1997. After leaving the House, he became our ambassador to the United Nations, where he served until becoming Secretary of Energy in 1998. After President Clinton's second term, Richardson returned to New Mexico and was governor from 2003 to 2011. He ran in the 2008 Democratic presidential primary and was the fourth leading vote getter in both Iowa and New Hampshire between the big three of President Obama, Hillary Clinton, and John Edwards. Senator Rick Santorum served Pennsylvania in the U.S. House from 1991 to 1995 and in the Senate from 1995 until 2007. He chaired the Republican conference in his second term and served as the chairman on the Republican Task Force on Welfare Reform in 1996, helping to shepherd the initiative eventually signed by President Clinton. Following his time in Congress, Santorum ran for president in 2012 and 2016, winning the 2012 Iowa caucus by the narrowest margin ever, 34 votes. He won 11 state primaries before suspending his campaign. Finally, our moderator today, Dr. Laura Brown, is the director of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. Dr. Brown has written a new book that is of particular interest given today's discussion. It's called Amateur Hour, Presidential Character and the Question of Leadership. Dr. Brown also served as a political appointee in President Clinton's administration at the Department of Education. We welcome her here today, as well as our two panelists, to guide what we hope will be a great discussion. Dr. Brown? Thank you, Paul. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so appreciative 
for the former members of Congress um, hosting this webinar. I think this is going to be a fascinating and insightful conversation, and I'm really um, eager to get it underway. So with that, I'm going to kind of start with the first question. Um, and this question will start with Governor Richardson um, and then follow with Senator Santorum. But the question is just how important was the in-person retail side of campaigning for all of your elections, not just the presidential um, races that you ran, but in fact, your elections generally. Because as we look to our country at the moment, while many states are opening up, um, the kind of human interaction looks very different, whether it's wearing masks and socially distancing, um, or whether it is in fact kind of not being employed at places of business. There are so many aspects of our country that appears different at the moment that it seems that the retail side might look very different too. And I would just ask you what, what that retail aspect of campaigning meant for your candidacies and your campaigns. Well, first, uh, thank you to FMC, uh, Lara, to you, to my friend Rick Santorum. Uh, for me, when I was running, when I was in my political career in the Congress, uh, in the cabinet, retail politics was paramount, was critically important. I used to try to do world's handshaking records when I was campaigning. Um, it was critically important that you do town meetings. It was critically important in the presidential race, uh, not just the forums, but the intensive rallies that you had, where in Iowa and New Hampshire, you would get questioned uh, dramatically by everybody. Um, this has obviously changed. What was also paramount was fundraising. Fundraising for traditional television, radio. Uh, at the time, the internet was starting 27208. I mean, I'll tell a quick story. Paul Hoffman, who we used to call the undertaker, he was in my presidential campaign in Iowa. And I remember sitting in the car with my driver and I'd say, tell, tell the undertaker we're gonna be late and, and nothing would happen. I didn't realize he was texting. I said, call him up, tell him we're late. Anyway, that era is over. So um, retail was critically important now it's digital advertising, now it's social distancing, now it's fundraising is still key. Um, and I think the advantage the president has, although I think we're gonna win the election, the Democrats, is that he has the biggest megaphone and, and he's out there, he's out there at rallies. And I think the vice president uh, is doing, making the right statements, but uh, I wish he'd get out there more with the public uh, recognizing social distance. So Senator, how do you get out there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to answer the fundamental question, it, it is it, for, for folks like Bill and I, I mean, the door-to-door -door and hand-to-hand -hand, uh, campaigning was key to our success. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's just obviously not possible anymore. And, and frankly, yeah, to answer again the question that uh, it was really important in my race for the house as i'm sure it was for bills but as as you sort of move up the chain and and to governor or senator and then president the personal campaigning becomes 
you know, less significant. I mean, you don't do as many. I mean, I, I know Bill, I'm sure, did five, six, seven events a day when you were campaigning for Congress or for, for governor or for Senate. You know, the president, because of the press, but, you know, you do one or two events a day. And so you're not you're not really engaged with the people as much as you were. So I, I would say that that this election will be impacted more at the state and local level and the campaigns at those levels than it will be at a presidential level. I mean, I think presidential campaign, as you see from the way Joe has decided to run his campaign and Trump is is communicating, is done through social media and through, and that's how people connect and, anymore. And certainly in this world, in the COVID-19 world, that is what the expectation is. You're going to hear from, uh, from people. Now, will that have an impact? Of course it will. I mean, Donald Trump, uh, was able to energize uh, his electorate uh, be, when those, ra those rallies were important. They, they sent a signal, and, and he's not going to have that ability to do that, at least we, we anticipate. And so I think, it, I, I think there are advantages the president has because of his social media following all the, and, and his ability to reach people. But I, I, I believe he's going to probably be hurt more by the lack of hand-to-hand -hand, uh, uh, mm -hmm. campaigning than Joe Biden will be. Well, I mean, it's interesting because obviously you winning Iowa, Iowa was a big part of that face-to-face -face at the uh, county fair and doing all those in-person events. But I think you're right. When you start to turn toward those general elections, you're having much larger events, right. which now probably can't happen. Um, and this is where I think there's another controversy that's in the news at the moment, which is where are the party conventions going to be? How are they going to be held? Um, obviously, we've heard President Trump um, very displeased with the governor of North Carolina saying that he wants to pull the convention from there, um, potentially moving it to other places, whether it's Arizona or Florida or Tennessee, where he feels he would have a more welcome response. Um, the Democrats have already postponed their convention from July to August, um, but there has not really been a communication about, is this happening virtually? Um, so, I mean, Senator Santorum, maybe you could uh, start this one off. Yeah, I, I, I think Bill and I are probably gonna answer the same, we, you know, who knows? Uh, <laughs> this is, this is, uh, this is, you know, like, like we're dealing with a lot of things these days. This is the first time we've ever had to deal with something like this. and. Uh, you can't pick up a convention and move it to Phoenix or move it to Nashville and have anything like what you were planning uh, to do at the original site. I mean, hotels and, and, and just what hotels are going to be open? How many hotels are going to close uh, because, uh, and go bankrupt because they're, they're simply not being in use? I mean, there's, to, to have any kind of large event in this, in this environment is going to be next to impossible. And so I'm sure that the, um, uh, the parties are both uh, trying to figure out how you, uh, how you do it virtually, because I, I just don't, I don't see, even if you had a convention, I think you'd have a lot of people. Look, a lot of folks that go to party conventions are not young people. And so if you're over the age <laughs> of 65, uh, you're probably not going to be showing up in a place where there's thousands of people closely packed together uh, in this environment. It's just, you know, you can do testing, you can do all, but it's, it's, People aren't going to take these risks. I mean, you can just see, uh, you know, that uh, that older people are taking this seriously. They should take it seriously. And so I, I just don't see that this is a viable option going forward. I'm sure both parties are planning right now on how to do a virtual campaign. I'm not involved in that planning, so I wouldn't know what it is, but I suspect that's the future. Yeah. Governor? 
Well, I, I concur with uh, Rick's assessment. Uh, I think it's going to be very hard, for instance, for the Democrats to hold the convention physically virtual. Yes, something will happen, uh, but it's, it's too early to tell. Now, I loved conventions. I loved going to them, being a delegate, you know, running around. But, but I think what is going to happen is this. The party activists that go to the Republican and Democratic conventions, they're still going to be active, no matter what. Uh, the president's base, the Trumpers, uh, the progressive base in the Democratic Party, they're still going to go out there. I think the big change is the candidates. Uh, right now, digital advertising is, if I were running, is where I would put a majority of my uh, fundraising money, maybe 60-40 versus traditional TV and radio advertising, which I think you still have to do. But the traditional precinct chairs going out door to door organizing, it's going to depend on the state of the virus where we are. I think the American people are very much uh, want to see the virus contained. I think the governors that have done well uh, politically have been those that have uh, said safety first, let's reopen gradually, but be careful. I think that's going to extend longer than we think, Lara. You know, right now uh, in Santa Fe, uh, restaurants were open, retail open. People are still not going out there. They're holding back a little bit. And I think that this opening of business, which is very important for the economy, is, is going to last longer than we think. And I think it's going to affect at least the timing of the Democratic Convention, which I think will be held virtually. I was hoping uh, to go to Milwaukee, but now I, I, I don't know if anyone's going to go. Uh, but that's the state as I see it. Sure. I mean, I would argue that if the NFL draft can do their um, draft virtually, and if any of you watched it, you saw that you know the draftees and the prospects were in their homes with small groups of people, and they were being uh, piped in, virtually engaged with, you know, um, sort of everyone in the process, um, I would imagine that the parties could too, but I think it takes a great deal of organizing. And frankly, I think the longer the parties wait, the more difficult it will be for them. Um, to well, do I, it, Laura, I, if I can just jump- curious if you've heard, like- yeah. Yeah, just, just if I can jump in, I think the, the really difficult part, I mean, the, the, you know, there's, there's different parts to a party convention. I mean, you, know, you have the meetings and you, you develop a platform and you do, all, you know, sort of, the, sort of the mechanics of the party convention and voting for, for the nominee. I mean, those things are really easy to be done virtually. You know, uh, yep. nobody, nobody really pays attention. The, the problem that, that, the, that the candidates are going to have is, are you going to get a bounce from your convention? Because who's going to tune in and watch someone give a speech to a camera one after another? I mean, without any audience, without any reaction, without any emotion. I mean, that's the real challenge is how do you get the bump? Uh, you know, it, it, you, yeah, you'll have the candidate do their acceptance speech in front of a teleprompter to, to the American public. It's not the same as, as the energy and the enthusiasm that's around a convention and, and, and to, you know, to, to have that emotional connection that you have when, when, a, when an acceptance speech is given or when the keynote speech is given or other speeches that, that tend to set the, set the table, if you will, for, for the fall election. I think it's going to be really hard. 
again, I, I, there are a lot of smart people in both parties who can, who can figure out how to, how to make this an attractive viewing experience, but it's a real challenge uh, for these conventions to, to give the traditional bump to the candidates that they have in the past. Sure, I think that's fair. Um, so let's like keep moving forward through the campaign cycle. So now we've gotten past the convention. Big thing on the presidential election calendar are the debates. The debates between the presidential nominees and the vice presidential um, debate. How do you imagine those may change or not? I mean, typically they've been held at universities with large um, audiences. Obviously, the candidates um, are looking for bumps out of those debates as well. Um, do you think there's more viewership? Do you think people tune them out? Any thoughts? Well, let me. I will say that I think the debates in this presidential election are going to be crucial, the determinant, the decider, whether there's, I don't know how many there will be, two, three, four, uh, because presidential debates are television debates. And the American people are going to be watching, knowing that they haven't had the advantage of rallies in their states, maybe as much as they did before. I doubt if they'd have many. So I think they're critical. I think the messaging in those debates obviously is critical. The preparation is critical. Um, I will just give you a, an example. Here in New Mexico, we had a primary on Tuesday for my old congressional seat. What was critical in that election were the debate, a debate held on Sunday before the election. But I can tell you, uh, that uh, the predictions of who would win, the messaging, social media, uh, the message of the candidates, uh, the candidate that I thought was going to win won. The one that didn't win, I, you could predict it. Nothing changed that much. And it was a major election here in my state, one of three congressional districts. Uh, turnout was heavy. A lot of uh, uh, absentee ballots. A lot of people went to the polls. Uh, it's a minority seat, a minority candidate won. So nothing changed dramatically in terms of the result and uh, the messaging and turnout. So maybe we're thinking that this COVID is going to affect our system, but I think our system is strong enough to basically contain any negatives out there that uh, would affect the turnout and, and the volatility of the election. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. This is obviously a, a fascinating moment. Senator Santorum, do you agree that the debates are going to be turning points? I mean, there are three presidential debates currently set and established and one vice presidential debate. Um, curious as to your thoughts. Yeah, I think that's probably the one element of the campaign that's not going to be really affected much by, by what's going on with the COVID crisis. I mean, uh, debate Debates are, are two people up on a stage. Yeah, there's an audience, but the audience is pretty much told to be quiet. Uh, <laughs> so they're not they're not they're not cheering or rooting, and, and it's not really a factor. So I think Bill's right. They're going to be critically important, and uh, really for both candidates, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of questions about Joe Biden and his uh, his ability to sort of handle Donald Trump uh, on a debate stage, and then there's there's Trump's temperament through this whole thing and how he'll react. Uh, so it's it's going to be, I think, fairly compelling television uh, because there's some really uncertainties as to how both of these candidates will be able to 
to, to navigate this. And, and we won't see a whole lot of, because of the limitation on live events, you're not going to see a whole lot of live campaigning. It's going to be all, all uh, social media and sort of, uh, you know, digital advertising and things like that. You're not going to see a lot of interaction between the candidates and the public. And so uh, I think there will be a lot more interest in, uh, in, this, in this debate than normal. Lara, I will add, I think the vice presidential debate will be very important too, because it'll be uh, a woman candidate on the Democratic side. We haven't had that since Geraldine Ferraro was a candidate. So I think the VP debate will be more important, certainly than it has in the past. I, I, I would concur that I think the VP debate is going to be must-see TV, um, not just for the fact that these two individuals will be an interesting match, you know, uh, Vice President Pence and then the Democratic uh, vice presidential nominee, but you also have the reality that come 2024, um, there may be this conversation about those being um, kind of the presidential nominees because were Trump to win, he would be termed out and were Biden to win, that um, vice presidential nominee would likely become the nominee just given the vice president's current age um, in 2024. So I agree, there's a lot of um, kind of just fascinating political dynamics in that VP debate. I, I would also ask if you were sort of managing the campaign and you've been in these conversations, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the digital advertising and, and the, the television advertising. Um, how much would it be important for you to try to travel or go to these battleground states we actually seem to have an expanding map at the moment. Um, so when we're looking out there, there are a lot of states that are currently potentially in play. So if you were the nominee, would you try to go to those states and do kind of set um, speeches just to be able to say you were there? Or would you kind of do this front porch campaign that we've um, alluded to? Yeah, Bill. Bill really touched on this earlier, and I think he's right. I think the I think the vice president's making a mistake by sitting in his basement. And uh, you know, Trump is out there looking like a leader, uh, not afraid to uh, uh, to get out and, and and you know go to places and see, you know the space launch or other places and uh, and and do things to show that uh, that you know Amer you know like part of part of overcoming this crisis is is the leader showing. Uh, you know, confidence in, in going out there and, and doing things. And, and I think you know, there, there's two approaches, as Bill mentioned earlier, that, you know, the Democratic governors and others have said, no, stay home. And Joe Biden is sort of following their lead by staying home. Uh, and uh, but there's a there's another side of Americans saying, you know, they're getting restless and they, they want to get out there. They're, they're you know, see unemployment claims again, very high again today. Uh, there's there's some serious hurt going on in America and just staying home uh, until this thing goes away, a vaccine is not a, is is not going to work. And so uh, I think there's a real risk for Joe Biden following this stay at home, don't do anything uh, that this could turn uh, on on the Democrats in in a, in a few weeks or a few months. In Pennsylvania, for example, it's turned on Governor Wolf. I mean, he's uh, he was very very popular, but as as the shutdown has continued, uh, his numbers have really started to plummet. So 
there's a there's a risk in the strategy that the Democratic governors are taking, and it's a big risk for Joe Biden to follow their lead. Well, I would add, uh, I think the vice president is starting to get out. He did get out uh, and went to Philadelphia yesterday. Uh, hopefully, that'll happen more. What I would advise, and and no one's asked for my advice, but I would, <laughs> I, I would uh, simply say that what I would try to do is. Uh, Laura, to answer your question is, is go to those states, go to Michigan, go to Ohio, go to Pennsylvania, go to Iowa, go to Florida, do those virtual events there, be there, surrounded by, by kids, by elderly, you, you know, do, but show that you went there. Now, I suspect that will be the strategy of the vice president. But uh, at the same time, I think the vice president has heard from his own governor, he's heard from health officials, you know, social distancing, stay home. He's, he's, uh, he's doing that. But I think eventually as the summer unfolds, as, as people start getting out more, I would hope the campaign moves them in the direction of, of, of traveling and, and respecting uh, social distancing and, and the virus restraints, uh, but, but getting out there with his message because he's very qualified. He is, uh, I think, saying the right things. He's a conciliator. Uh, and, and he's, in my view, we need a moderate candidate. And he is the moderate candidate. I mean, I'm a moderate, but we're an endangered species in my own party. I don't know if Rick considers himself. I called Rick a moderate once. He got mad at me. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> you were just trying to hurt me politically when you did it, Bill. I, I knew it. <laughs> so let me um, turn to one last question before we start taking some questions from our virtual audience. We have some experience now with vote by mail. Um, there are a lot of questions about how people are going to vote. We saw on Tuesday that there were some long lines in places that had um, primary elections. And I'm just curious, I mean, the House and uh, the Senate and the President have all signed and passed about $400 million to help states do more to shore up their election security. But there is talk about needing additional funds and that that would be kind of the next piece of legislation and whether or not there should be some more money that is available to counties and states um, to step up their election efforts. I, I'm, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about the casting and counting controversies that exist and how you think we can do a better job just to ensure that our vote remains sacred and that democracy is protected. So I guess maybe we'll, we should start with Senator Santorum since Pennsylvania just had its primary on yeah, and, and uh, turnout was actually fairly light. Uh, now, we didn't have any, any statewide elections that were in controversy, both all the, all the, uh, the row offices that are, we don't have a senator or a governor up this time, and, and, uh, and our row office, you know, treasurer, auditor, things like that were all non-contested. So there wasn't any really, and there weren't even that many big congressional races where there was contested primary. So uh, there's, there's a good reason, I guess, there was low turnout, but the turnout was low. Uh, and I... I I guess my, my, my gut reaction is that, uh, that 
people uh, today are in, in every uh, state are going out and, and doing things. Uh, they're grocery shopping, they're going to the store, they're doing, they're doing things that they have to do as part of normal life and they're interacting with people in the process. Uh, I don't see voting as really that much different. I mean, that, uh, that they're, I understand people are concerned and, and they should be concerned, but it, and if you're elderly, I, I completely understand why you'd wanna fill out an absentee ballot or in states allow early voting, but you know, or, or, or other or mail-in voting to, to do that. Uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend uh, going to the polls, but uh, I, I think big changes in elections, particularly uh, uh, that are not sometimes, sometimes particularly well thought out, uh, are breeding ground for, uh, for accusations of fraud and accusations for uh, you know, the illegitimacy in election. And I think uh, the, the more you can, uh, you can build confidence in an election that, that uh, votes are not being uh, you know, rounded up illegally and, 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 and there's, there's room for, for fraud, uh, I think the, the more confidence that you're going to build in this, I, look, you're going to have both sides. You're already seen it. Both sides already accusing the other of, 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 of fraud or trying to, trying to cheat in the election. I, I think, uh, less change is better and more, uh, more, uh, uh, funds going to make sure that the existing systems that people have confidence in will work well is a better approach. So that's a great well, conservative. Stan, like Sam, say, you know, uh, less change, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, well, I I, look, I think you have some real concern about uh, sure. the legitimacy of an election if, if you have a bunch of new systems being put in place that, are, that, uh, that can lend itself to accusations of, of fraud. Governor? Now, when I was governor, I brought paper balloting back to New Mexico because the computer systems were just out of control and not working and not accurate. You know, I'm an advocate. I come from a minority state. The majority of our voters are Hispanic, Native American. And, you know, I'm not trying to get too partisan here, but the Republican Party uh, put volunteer poll watchers. Uh, and, and I have felt that the other side is, is a little more egregious in saying, well, you know, uh, fraud. And, you know, they're just afraid of minority voters that are generally not with them. Uh, going to the polls. Now, I know Rick will respond, but I'm for online voting, same-day voting. Uh, make it easy for the American people to vote. We're still at about 50% of eligible voters going to the polls on a presidential election. Uh, even countries all over Eastern Europe, uh, Latin America, they're 90, 80%. So we should do a lot more uh, absentee voting. There's record turnouts here. Uh, people didn't want to go to the polls, so they, they had absentee voting, and it worked well. People, let's encourage them to go out and vote, and, you know, this fraud stuff, they're just not there. Well, here's what I would say. All those, all those states, all those countries, Bill, that have uh, 80 and 90 percent voter turnout all require uh, identification at the polling place. I mean, so the idea that, that having an ID or having some sort of uh, deterrent from people fraudulently stacking the ballot box is is an integrity issue that, that look, Republic, I, I don't know if any Republican doesn't want everybody who's, who's legally available to vote to vote. We want everybody to vote. I don't care the color of your skin. But we, what we have to have is we have to have integrity in the process. And, and, and that means that you have to have, you can't just say, well, we're going to let everybody vote however they want to vote, whenever they want to vote. 
and not have uh, it measures in place to make sure that those votes are legitimately cast. And, and again, no one's trying to block anybody. We're just trying to make sure that we have legitimate, we have legitimacy in our election process. Well, so maybe we'll leave it there before this turns into crossfire. Uh, <laughs> but why don't we uh, turn it over to our virtual audience, because I know we have some former members of Congress who are really interested in asking a few questions. Uh, former Congressman Jason Altmaier, um, Paul, you can unmute him so then he can ask that question himself. Thank you both. I know you're both uh, acute historians of, of political history. And if you remember back to Williams, Jennings, Bryan, or Theodore Roosevelt, and in the TV age, whether it be FDR, JFK, Ronald Reagan, certainly uh, Barack Obama, long careers, but they're remembered for their speeches to big audiences, rising to the moment, giving powerful speeches. So how is the new normal going to impact the ability to govern? put the campaign aside, but the ability to motivate people and create those powerful moments where they speak before large crowds. If they're not able to do that as leaders, how is that going to impact their ability to govern and their historical legacy? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll try that first. I mean, I, that's a good question, Jason. Nice to hear from you, uh, fellow Pennsylvanian. So let me, let me just say that I think that those moments are becoming less and less important in the in the age uh, that we have today. I mean, uh, back you know when Abraham Lincoln was giving speeches, you know the typical political speech was an hour and a half or two hours, and it, now people have and now we have Twitter. Uh, it's just people's people's ability to sit and watch long form anything. Uh, is is becoming less and less uh, they're, they're just less and less tolerated. So, I, I I hear you. I think those moments are important, but I think they're less important today uh, than than the uh, than what is the more traditional way of communicating powerful things, which is short, uh, emotional, and uh, and and uh, pithy uh, statements and 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 comments. So, uh, and there's certainly plenty of opportunity to do that, and, and both candidates will, will have the opportunity to do it. So I'm not sure that those, those moments matter anymore, and certainly not as much as they used to. Well, I, I would uh, agree with Rick, but I think this is why the debates are critically important, um, how they unfold, what the message is, the vice presidential debate, the first woman candidate, uh, and, and this also points to effective advertising, either digitally uh, and and traditional television. You know, I, I'm I'm concerned, for instance, with the actions of Twitter and 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 also, well, especially Facebook, saying that uh, you know there's not going to be any revision of content in the ads because I believe this is going to be the dirtiest campaign we've ever had. Uh, especially digitally. And there's not going to be a check and balance on it as much as I thought. Maybe Twitter did a little bit, but I was very disappointed in Facebook. I've been a big supporter of it. And, and so the worry that I have is that uh, the, the, instead of the inspirational line, Congressman, that you, uh, that you talked about all these presidents, that the most negative, uh, most unfortunately effective negative ad 
could be uh, not dominant, but be a key factor. So um, I, I'm just saying you want to have a skilled messaging, personal advertising, TV, traditional advertising, but probably more importantly, digitally. And I would put most of my money, advertising money, in digital, uh, maybe 60-40, 55-45, because I think people will be home and they'll be affected. And this is why TV ads have come back as, as barometers when they were declining in the past. Great. And so our next question comes to us from former Representative Larry Smith. Paul, if you can unmute him. I hope. <laughs> Technology is always a bit of a... Okay. Former Congressman Smith, please feel free. I think you've unmuted yourself now. Please feel free to ask your question. Maybe. <laughs> So if not, I know uh, former representative Cliff Stearns is also tuning in and is eager to ask a question. Representative yes, can, Stearns, great. Yes, can you hear me? We can. Yes. Well, let me just welcome my colleagues and just tell you how much uh, the former members of Congress Association appreciates all their good work. And just, uh, I think, as a person who served with them and admires both of them, regardless of the party, uh, they've done a great job of representing this country of ours. My question is, because of their skills, tell me, if you were on the campaign running for president today in your party, what would be your short campaign speech that you would say as you talk to uh, the voters today? Uh, I'm not asking you to elaborate in detail, but maybe provide some of the key issues so that we could uh, sort of hear uh, what you would say if you were running for president today. And, and thanks so much. Uh, I consider you, both of you some good friends. Rick, do you want to go first or should I? Go ahead, Bill. I've, I've been going first all the time. So I'll let you go mix it up. Let you go first. Well, I would, uh, Cliff, and, and thank you. you, you were always a bipartisan gentleman. And that's one of the things about the former members. When Rick and I were there, Cliff, myself, we used to work together. You know, we'd have our differences, but we eventually worked together. That's not happening in this country today, especially between the Congress and the president. So I would say my message would be, we need to bring this country together. We need to heal. Uh, we cannot have... Uh, messaging that uh, puts uh, uh, the military on the streets to quell peaceful and democratic disturbances, uh, safety first in terms of the American people's health. We have to create jobs, opportunity, uh, employment. We got to have health care, affordable health care, uh, you know, expand Obamacare. I, I think that's the, the best option. And, and let's emphasize education the education uh, of our population, of our kids, our university system. I know I've overdone it a bit. Foreign policy-wise, return to internationalism. Uh, Rick, you were an internationalist. So were you, Cliff. 
you know, return to the, to the, the United Nations, to multilateralism instead of this nationalistic uh, effort that uh, we seem to be propagating today. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, I would I would take a little different tact, obviously, uh, but I think Bill's uh, Bill's comment about uh, you know focusing on 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 the on the immediate issues that we have in front of us. Obviously, we're still dealing with the uh, with the crisis uh, in uh, of COVID nineteen. That is having, I mean, we have the immediate crisis, which are you know the uh, the George Floyd situation and and the riots and and obviously any uh, any 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 speech today has to sort of start with uh, with addressing with addressing that issue, uh, but the, the the longer term consequential issue for for I think a presidential candidate in this election cycle is is how are you going to deal with the health impact of COVID nineteen and how are you going to deal with getting the economy uh, going again and and that has to be the, that has to be your sort of your focal uh, point as 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 a candidate and uh, and. Look, I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago praising Democrats and Republicans for coming together and actually putting uh, the interests of people's life uh, before before liberty, before the ability to go out and do whatever you want to do and 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 uh, and, and you know work and do whatever. We 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 val- we we showed as a country that we do value life, and I think that that's an important statement. But uh, as as we've said many times, uh, you know, you've heard many times that. The, the the cure can't be worse than the, than the disease and and we're looking at, uh, at well even even in some respects some of the riots we're seeing I think is an, is is in part the fact that people have been pent up and 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 not working and there's a lot of anger and frustration and angst about you know is this is this crisis is this economic crisis going to last for a few more weeks a few more months a few more years and and so there's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty out there and I think uh, Candidly, neither presidential candidate has done a particularly good job of of providing a a vision, a hopeful vision for the millions and millions of Americans who are suffering through this time, not just from their health impact, but from the long term impacts of economic devastation. And I think that that has to be the center point of any presidential campaign. And I'm not sure that either has figured out how to do that yet. So, Governor, did you want to chime in? Are you okay? Oh, no, I think I, I had my piece on that. So you want to get more <laughs> questions in. Okay, so we have another uh, question really more on the international side of the world from um, Francisco de Lama, who's really interested in where we are going in terms of um, asking countries uh, for help in our elections and what that means for fraud. Maybe, Francisco, you could phrase that for us yourself. Hi, how are you? It's a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for hosting this meeting. Uh, what I wanted to ask basically is, uh, for example, the International Federation of Electoral Systems usually uh, try to see what other countries are doing in terms of elections to try to see uh, what lessons learned could be of use of other countries. Should the U.S. in this case ask for assistance, for example, for other countries who have been using uh, different kinds of uh, electoral methods? Well, I'll, I'll start first. Uh, look, we're not perfect, but no, I think we have enough election monitors. We have at the state level enough uh, 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 safeguards uh, to, to not totally guarantee that an election is, is safe, 
I know a lot of these international election monitors are good, but, but I think our system right now um, just needs uh, to encourage people to vote. Uh, look, nobody wants a fraudulent election. But uh, I think our main thrust in our elections is to get more people voting. That's, that's what I see as, as our weakness compared to other countries. But, uh, you know, we do invite election monitors. Uh, 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 individuals from countries, leaders come to the Democratic Republican Convention. They come election day uh, uh, to my state, uh, a lot of uh, foreign representatives. That should be encouraged. But, but to actually election monitor, uh, look at the votes, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's necessary right now. Senator? Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I'm not, I, I agree with Bill. I don't think we need to, uh, I just agree with what Bill said. So I'll just add that I think one of the things people don't realize is that our constitution actually puts the onus for the elections on each one of the states. And one of the things that's very true about our American system of voting is that it tends to actually produce greater problems around, in political science, we call this incompetence rather than malfeasance. So it's much more likely that someone's vote might not get counted because they sort of didn't have a lot of experience or there was many volunteers involved in the process of casting their ballot and they weren't clear about their intention then that, in fact, a ballot might be fraudulently cast. So our, there is always a trade-off in these two things. Um, the more sort of centralized you make it, the more um, you make it open for a manipulation. And this is where it's kind of interesting. Our system falls on the side of more mistakes than it does um, more actually intentional bad and wrongdoing. Um, so, it is always a balance. But I would also just ask each of our panelists one other question about this is, you know, Governor Richardson, you just talked about the importance of digital advertising, but what do we do about the spread of misinformation that is so um, prevalent in these social media platforms? I mean, obviously the platforms themselves have some governance over them, but if you were, a presidential nominee, um, I would argue that the misinformation campaigns are probably some of the biggest challenges each candidate is going to face. Because um, as you suggested, this is going to be a very dirty campaign. And um, there is also, I think, a reality that whisper campaigns have gone on as long as American politics has. It's just that now, it moves with speed and volume and scale per scene. Well, so. I, I mentioned early, uh, I, I'm very, very upset at Mark Zuckerberg and I'm very upset at uh, Facebook for their announcement that uh, they, they, they would not examine the content uh, of the president's uh, uh, assertions where uh, they were clearly inciting, in my view, uh, certain violent acts. Uh, and, and, and so that bothers me because I think Facebook is used around the world. It's, it's a great technology. You know, I'm not saying you over-regulate Facebook and Amazon and Twitter, but, but I think you do have to have some fair standards in advertising. 
And if that means legislation, now Twitter was a little better. You know, they, they kind of erred on both sides of the issue uh, on the president's tweets. But look, I, I, I don't want to have like a, a complete overhaul regulatory mechanism on all our tech giants. But I think in the, it, when something is false and you know it's false, uh, you shouldn't put it on the screen, on the computer. And, and that's just basic fairness. And we should find a way to do it. The, the answer was that voluntarily these giants would take those steps and they haven't, especially Facebook. I, I, I'm very upset at their decision and, and their attitude. And, and I don't know what's gonna happen, but I bet you they will face uh, legislative problems in the next session of Congress. This is why you have panels. I, I, I'm very supportive of uh, what Facebook did. I, I, I think that, uh, that we don't want uh, people who have, uh, have the ability to publish widely like Facebook and Twitter uh, to be evaluating these things as to whether they're true or false. They, they, they are a, uh, an avenue for people to put out information and there has been no uh, uh, shortage of, of uh, posts on Facebook and Twitter uh, criticizing and, and calling to task the, the, uh, the, uh, the quote, false things that are being put out there. That's what, a, that's what an open airway does. I mean, and, and what, what I'm concerned about, I think uh, some Democrats and Republicans both, this, it's interesting because it's not as much of a partisan issue because you have folks on both sides of the aisle who have taken uh, positions uh, some agreeing with Bill, like folks like Josh Hawley and others on the Republican side. And then, you know, if Democrats who are, uh, you know, more for uh, allowing the, uh, the social media world to, uh, to get that information out and let the social media world deal with it, uh, you know, and, and let, let, let voices be heard and let conflicting uh, stories be, be taught. But we don't want, particularly, we don't want the government coming in and saying, well, you know, this is, this is permitted speech and this is not permitted speech. I think Facebook and Twitter have all attempted to have community standards. And I think those community standards, if you read them, are fairly good. Uh, how they're enforced may not be uniform. You have conservatives organizations complaining that Twitter, you know, blocks them. You have liberal organizations saying that they're, that Twitter or Facebook is unfair. That's fine. Uh, but, but what, what you need is a, a, a standard, a community standard that I, I like to put it in terms of not what's legal or illegal, but uh, that what is intrinsically evil, you know, calling, you know, a, asking, you know, a tweet saying, you know, they, you know, we should murder someone. That's an intrinsically evil act uh, for someone to say, let's go rally or let's go protest. Uh, if it's against the law to do so, is not intrinsically evil. In fact, it's protected by the first by the First Amendment. So, those are the kinds of calls I don't want Facebook and Twitter making. I want them to you know stop to to not promote child pornography on the internet. That that's a good thing, um, because that's an intrinsically evil thing. And so I think what what the organizations have tried to do, at least from what I see, is is try to you know develop a quote community standard of what the community thinks is, is wrong no matter what. Uh, and then those other things that, that are opinions or, uh, or, or points of view that you may not like as odious as they are, they have the right to be out there and they have the right to have people have a discussion about it. So before we wrap, because we're just at that time, um, on this topic, it's sort of interesting because President Trump is actually more aligned at the moment with Governor Bill. 
and, and yeah. saying that he would like to essentially make those platforms have some legal liability for the statements that are put on them, which puts them more in the world of the media. Now, there are a lot of obviously problems with President Trump issuing an executive order, and certainly that would need to be a congressional um, bill and legislation. But I'd just be curious, are you, um, you know, where do you each fall? Maybe just a quick yes or no on, on what President Trump did on this side. Well, uh, uh, Lara, I, I'll simply say that I, I don't want to come out of saying that everything in Twitter and Facebook needs to be regulated. I'm talking about blatantly false claims, mm -hmm. violent claims, pornography. Uh, and, and I think there are community standards that Facebook and Twitter need to follow. And, and if they're obviously in some cases, especially Facebook not doing, there should be very narrow legislation that deals with that. So that, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, I don't, I don't support what President Trump did. Uh, I think that was the wrong approach. I think uh, he will rue the day that he asked the federal government to come in and regulate this content. I think that's a, that's a huge mistake. Uh, the federal government shouldn't be shouldn't be involved in that. Uh, we we should be working. Uh, you know, both the left and the right should uh, should be uh, interacting with with the social media giants uh, from YouTube to Google to everybody else and uh, and and giving their input. And these organizations should should try to be fair and and have standards that say you know here's here's prohibitive activity. Bill mentioned a couple of them. You know uh, you know. Pornography and, and and incitement to violence; those are things that are intrinsically evil things to do, and we and and the community standard shouldn't permit them, and, and they should be stopped. But but when it comes to political speech and you know uh, opinions that you are you find odious, that 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 needs to be out there, and it needs to be uh, you know uh, addressed by 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 the community, not by the provider. Fascinating. Well, I can't thank you both enough for this. Um, let me just say thank you to Governor Richardson. Thank you to Senator Santorum. Thank you to the former members of Congress um, for hosting this webinar. I really appreciate your convening um, these experienced legislators and executive um, branch officials uh, really in talking about what sort of challenge we have going toward November. This is going to be an election unlike one we have ever seen in our lifetimes, and I appreciate them uh, weighing in with their thoughts on it. So let me turn this back over to Paul, who may just finish up um, for a minute or two. Thanks, Paul. Thank you all. Thank you to our panelists. And on behalf of the more than 600 former members of Congress, thank you all for listening today. Have a great day and a wonderful weekend.